Come, O sinner, come and see what our God became to set us free. If there's one good, uh, if there's one message tonight, it would be this. This Good Friday, would we come and see with childlike wonder the incredible Saviour who died so that we might be set free? Three points to help us slow down and stare in wonder and amazement. The first point will be Christ's crucifixion. The second, Christ's cry of anguish. And the third, Christ's gift of grace. Point one, Christ's crucifixion. Before we can get to this cry of anguish, this cry out on the cross where Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We need to take stock of the scene at large. What has gone on to bring him to this point, to this moment of grief? How how has he found himself hanging helplessly upon the cross? Brendo alluded to this last week that um, a week before Christ's crucifixion, the holy week for the Passover, Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a donkey with some level of fanfare. They think that he is king. In Matthew 21, we read from verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus. From Nazareth of Galilee. As Matthew's account records, what follows this fanfare is actually a couple of days of pretty heavy preaching and teaching from Jesus. And his teaching gets under the skin of the religious elite in Jerusalem. So much so that they start to conspire against him, they start to plot to kill him. Matthew 26, we read in verse 1, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, when he'd finished preaching in Jerusalem, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. And yet it wasn't just the religious leaders who were plotting to kill Jesus. One of his own, Judas, was plotting to betray him also. We find Jesus in the garden, grieved by the burden that he is about to carry at the cross, calling out to his father. And he turns to Peter and he says, you will betray me also. He's arrested and taken off from the garden He's interrogated by the religious elite, shamed, mocked, falsely accused, slapped and spit on. And sadly, meanwhile, Peter is out in the courtyard 
denying that he even knew Jesus. Then Pilate sees him as innocent, but gives the crowd a choice. He says, I will release Barabbas or I will release Jesus. You choose. No doubt the crowd, they want Barabbas, a well-known criminal, released. They want Jesus' blood. Jesus is beaten again, mocked again, led out of Jerusalem to be crucified. And now Jesus, naked, brutalized, tortured and shamed, hangs for three hours, suspended for all to see. And so as we slow down and take stock of the crucifixion scene, it's interesting to note a theme that actually runs throughout Matthew, Matthew's account. And we read it. His emphasis is actually not on the brutality of the crucifixion, although that was a brutal sight. But instead, his emphasis is on the mockery of Jesus. Verse 28, we read, They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And here, listen to this. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 30, And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Verse 34, They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. You know, at that moment in suffering and pain, even a sip of water would have soothed and brought some sort of sense of respite to him. And they mock him by giving him a bitter drink, unbearable to consume. Over his head, in verse 37, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Verse 39, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Verse 41, So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. Even the robbers... Two guys that are hanging next to him, almost about to die themselves. They even have it in them, in verse 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Time and time again in this story, Jesus is despised and rejected by men. And yet there is actually such irony in their mockery. Jesus is the King of the Jews. He is the Son of God. He is the King of Israel. He should be clothed in robes and bowed down before. He could save himself. But we know in Matthew 28, Matthew 20, 28, Christ did not come to be served as a king, but he came to serve to give his life as a ransom for many. And so the point is, in this moment, Christ the King is forsaken by man. To forsake is to leave or abandon, to reject, to desert. 
from the greatest in Pilate to the least in the criminals, from those who never knew him to those of his closest friends. As the Son of God hung there on the cross, Jesus was abandoned, despised and rejected by mankind. Just this week, as I was reading uh, through an Easter devotional that I've been doing with a friend of mine on the Bible app, you read the same devotional, you can make comments about how it's sort of, you know, affecting you and whatnot. And it was interesting that my friend made this point. He said, it seems Peter in this story often gets a bit of a bad rap. His denial of, for his denial of Jesus. And I think that we'd like to think that we're probably a bit different to Peter. If we'd seen the powerful works of Jesus firsthand, if we'd seen him heal the sick, feed 5,000, if we'd listened to him minister over the course of a number of years, you'd think, I think we'd like to think we'd have more faith, more courage to trust the power of Christ in that moment. But I think it's true that even when the threat of death or imprisonment isn't even affecting us, we can at times be tempted to deny Christ in the everyday. Whether consciously or not, our sinful nature is always tempting us to abandon Christ, to go our own way. And so the point is, in the lead up to this cry of anguish, Jesus was forsaken by man and our face is in the crowd with them. Forsaken by Judas for money. Forsaken by Peter for fear of man. Forsaken by his disciples for fear of their lives. Forsaken by the priests and Pharisees for fear of losing power. Forsaken by Pilate for loss, fear of loss of reputation or position. Forsaken by us. When we choose to live our own lives, our own way. John Stott puts it really helpfully when he says, Until you see the cross as that which is done by you, you will never appreciate that it is done for you. And so to come back to the original question, why does Christ find himself hanging on the cross? Because he is forsaken by man. But look with me at verse 45 of our text. As Jesus hangs rejected by man, darkness closes in. It's the sixth hour, 12 p.m. midday, and darkness comes over the land through to the ninth hour, about 3 p.m. I liken it to, if you think back to two summers ago when the bushfires raged through New South Wales and there was pictures that were popping up from the south coast Three o'clock in the afternoon and the sky is black. I remember actually getting a text from Ollie Pierce. He was down there on holidays and I said, hey, how are you doing? He said, oh, it's three o'clock in the afternoon and there was just this darkness in the sky. It was an eerie scene, wasn't it? You could tell that something wasn't right. And the same applies in this context. Something isn't right. Darkness is a sign of God's judgment throughout Scripture. And God's judgment in this moment is on full display. Not only has man forsaken Christ, but as God's judgment of man's sin bears down on Christ, 
he forsakes him also. Which brings us to our second point this evening, which is Christ's cry of anguish. We're going to read uh, verses 45 and 46 again. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only moment as recorded in scripture that Jesus does not refer to God as Father. And so it appears at this moment something much deeper than his imminent death is at play. Why is he saying this? Was it the shame, the pain, the abandonment of his friends, this unjust death sentence that he was suffering? He hangs helplessly on the cross, forsaken by man, but his cry is seemingly not one of agony. Although the physical pain is real, his cry is one of torment, torment of his soul. I'm not sure we can really understand fully the torment of, of his soul, uh, sorry, the torment at a soul level that Christ is enduring in, in this moment. But his words do give us somewhat of a picture that as we step back and take in this scene, it is clear that the Son of God is truly being forsaken, not just by man, but by God himself. That is the real torment of the cross. Christ's death is no accident. This is no surprise to him. He's not asking God a question because it's come as a surprise that he's hanging on the cross. We just read that he predicted his death. He told his disciples this was going to happen. He knew that he was born to die and his whole life was leading up to this moment. This cry of anguish is actually a reference to Psalm 22, an ancient song, a scripture that was written a thousand odd years beforehand. And as Jesus at this moment hangs on the cross, he thereby fulfills it. If you'd like, turn with me to Psalm 22. I'm just going to read a few snippets of the psalm. Reading from verse 1, we read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Verses 6 and 7, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. Verse 16 through 18, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. All these things have been fulfilled. This was all part of God's plan. That Jesus would first be forsaken by man. And now, as darkness sets in over the land, the most terrible and tormenting part of it all, Jesus is forsaken by God, abandoned by God, alone. One of uh, my favorite TV shows is actually called Alone. 
It's on SBS. It's a reality TV show. And what happens is 10 contestants, they're given a backpack and they can take 10 items. And they are dropped into the wilderness, away from each other so they will not see each other. There's no way for them to make contact. And they're obviously alone and they're required to survive for as long as possible by themselves. On the first night that one of the guys was dropped at his location, he set up this shanty with a tarpaulin and two bears were scratching at the tarpaulin during the night. Another lady actually is chopping wood and she chops the wood and the axe bounces off and slices her hand severely. And you see this because it's all self-filmed. They don't have any, there's no camera people out there. It's all self-filmed. It's interesting to watch. It's fascinating to watch, to be honest. They're affected by the elements, by the animals, by the need for water and fire and shelter and whatnot. But what's really interesting is it's not so much the elements that really get to them. It's the fact that they are alone. It's the lingering and lasting sense of being alone that truly begins to overwhelm these contestants. And it eventually breaks them. They start to go crazy. Their thoughts get the better of them. And yet, all they get to do is push a button and a helicopter zooms in, lands, picks them up and rescues them. Pulls them out of their their difficult situation, pulls them out of their circumstance. And the question that I ask is, they call the show Alone. But actually, are they really alone? At the push of the button, they can be rescued straight away. But the sad reality for Jesus, our Lord, is that this is not his circumstance. His pain of isolation and abandonment goes infinitely deeper. Up until this point, although despised by man, Jesus still enjoys fellowship with the Father. But as the darkness sets in, the innocent son carrying the unbounded totality of human sin upon his shoulders must be abandoned by the holy and righteous father. In that moment, God's wrath is poured out upon him as the substitute for our sins. Jesus is rejected by God, utterly alone. No push of a button to rescue him, no rescue party on call. He doesn't simply feel forsaken He is forsaken. I think it can be tempting at this point to think for a moment that God the Father is harsh and cruel and that Jesus the Son is loving and self-sacrificial in this moment. But such a thought doesn't stand up to Scripture when we read the well-known verse from John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This moment captures the mutual love of the father and the son for us. The fact that the father had to turn his back on his beloved son and the fact that the son endured the wrath of God on the cross for our sake 
captures this mutual love for us. And I guess a question for us to consider tonight as we stop and stare in wonder at this situation. Why would they do this? What was it about the crucifixion despite its horror that it was so important that God planned it in advance and Christ came and endured it? It is a mystery of God's grace, but there are four key truths that help us to answer this question. Why did Christ suffer in our place? And the first is, Christ died for us. Not only was it voluntary and necessary, but it was also altruistic and beneficial for us. He died for our sake and not his own. Cast your eyes back to verse 41 of this text to help us see this. Verse 41 it says, So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. These words spoken in mockery and insult actually ring true. C.J. Mahaney puts it really helpfully, I think, when he says, Without their knowing it, the mocking words these onlookers utter do in fact reveal the uniqueness of the Saviour's death and why it mattered. In their spiritual blindness, they in effect express sublime spiritual truth. For Jesus cannot both save himself and save you and me. It is precisely because he refused to save himself that he is able to save others. Jesus could not save himself and us simultaneously. He chose to sacrifice himself in order to save the world. The second truth to help us understand why it is that Christ is hanging, suffering in our place, is that Christ died for us, that he would bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 we read, For Christ also suffered once for all sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The purpose of Christ's death was that we might be reconciled with God, that we would enjoy a relationship with him. Christ was abandoned so that we might be accepted. He experienced death so that we would experience eternal life. He endured anguish that we would experience peace with God. He received judgment that we might experience forgiveness. He was forsaken that we might never be forsaken. Christ suffered in our place so that we might enjoy fellowship with him. The third truth to help us understand why did Christ suffer in in our place is that Christ died for our sins. Our sins, our rejection of God, put us at at enmity with God. They are an obstacle to our relationship with him. And yet, in an act of an astounding grace, he dealt with our sin through his death. The judgment we deserve was poured out on Jesus. Just as a falsely accused man stands waiting on death row. Just imagine that for a moment. A falsely accused man 
standing, waiting on death row. Moments before his death. And a detective bursts through the door and says, wait, we've got the wrong guy. Don't do it. We don't need to kill this man. And that man turns to the detective and says, it's okay, I'll take the punishment. It doesn't make sense, does it? It just wouldn't happen. And yet, in a small moment, in a small glimpse, we get a glimpse what Christ has done in taking the punishment that we deserve. Fourthly and finally, as we ask this question, why did Christ suffer for us? It's because Christ died for our death. In his innocence, he endured the penalty that our sin deserved. Romans 6.20 reads, For the wages of sin is death. We deserve to die in light of our sin. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ experienced death that we might experience life. And so why did Christ suffer in our place? Well, Christ died for us for our good, for our salvation. In order to do this, he had to deal with our sins. And so in dying for our sins, it was his, our death that he died. For here is, this, is sin with all its horror and grace with all its wonder. To bring us to our third and final point, Christ's gift of grace. This will be brief and really is just a point of application about what it, what, what it actually means for, for us, for you and me. What does Christ's death mean for you and me? In Romans 6, verse 6, Paul says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would be no longer enslaved to sin. In essence, Christ's death means freedom for us. Freedom to enjoy a relationship with God through Jesus. Something that could not happen because of our sin. But because of Christ's death for us, we get to enjoy intimacy with God, our Creator. This is a gift of grace. Because it's nothing that we've done. We cannot earn this freedom. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 reads, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one can boast. The good news of this Easter weekend is that there is a gift of grace on offer for all of us. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can receive that gift through faith in Christ. And so perhaps if you're sitting there and this is a bit, a bit of news to you, maybe you've never even considered the Easter weekend to mean this. I invite you to stop and to consider this free gift of grace. 
Just as believers are prone to doubt, so doubters are prone to believe. And for those of us in this room who are followers of Jesus, you would know that to be true because at one point we did, we doubted. And yet we stepped out in faith and put our trust in Christ. And so if you have questions, if you feel like this message puts a, you know, a rock in your shoe, so to speak. Well, as a church, we want to help you. We want to help you to understand this message more. This message has changed our lives. And so we invite you to try and make sense of it for your own life. Brenda already alluded to this, but we do have a Christianity Explored evening, an information night. Come and ask some of those questions. I'd be happy to sit with you and talk with these, talk these questions through. We'd love to journey with you in this. And for those of us that call Jesus as Lord, would we see with renewed wonder and awe the glory of Christ on full display this Good Friday? Would we feel the weight of justice served on our behalf? Would we respond with thanksgiving and praise? Would it bring us joy and hope and peace this Easter? Would it stir in us an enthusiasm and an excitement for Sunday? Resurrection Sunday as we look forward to celebrating our risen Saviour. This Easter weekend, would we come and see with childlike wonder the incredible Saviour who died that we might be set free. To close, we're about to sing Amazing Grace and I'd actually like to read a verse from it that captures this free gift of grace so eloquently. My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Saviour, has ransomed me. And like a flood, his mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. Truly today, we can stand in awe this evening of the wonderful death of our Saviour Jesus and the amazing grace that we have received in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe and wonder and amazement at your gracious gift of your Son Jesus on the cross. That you would forsake him so that we would never be forsaken. Lord, we give thanks to you this evening. We praise you. We worship you. That in light of this sacrifice, we enjoy relationship with you. Intimacy with the Father. And so, Lord, we give thanks this evening for your amazing grace. Amen. The gift of grace is amazing, isn't it? The giver is even more amazing. Let's stand together. Let's sing to him.